Hello, everyone, and welcome to Global Gurus, where every Friday we explore stories of international business and speak with industry leaders operating around the world. I'm your host, Philip Auerbach of Auerbach International. Thank you for joining us. If you're tuning in for the first time, we start each podcast with a running segment called Full Power Fridays, where we explore a funny blooper or a mistranslation that does not quite convey the professional image that your organization wants to project. And since today's guest will talk about a very interesting mistranslation that happened to him in China, I'd like to add to that by giving uh, an example of a sign in China outside a Mexican restaurant, which was in Shanghai. And the top of the sign, of course, was in Chinese and the bottom was in English. And the English read as follows. Zapata's Mexican Cantina does not sponsor prostitutes at our establishment. If you are a prostitute, please refrain from entering our garden or restaurant. If you are unsure whether you are a prostitute, please ask one of our friendly security guards to sort it out for you. Our guest today is Eric Levine. He's been in the fitness world for over three decades. And he started the very first franchise of Gold's Gym, which was in Santa Barbara, California, and then in Toronto. He sold the initial clubs and moved to the LA area and partnered with Ray Wilson to create 72 family fitness clubs worldwide. After that, he merged Gold's Gyms with 24-Hour Fitness. He then expanded into Asia with a chain called California Fitness and grew his revenues from zero to $100 million per before his third year with an EBITDA, which is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization of $38 million. He broke every record in the fitness world and opened in Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, Korea, Thailand, Malaysia, China, and Vietnam. Around 2008, he sold California Fitness to 24-Hour Fitness and retained, and retained some 24-hour shares. And the 24-hour fitness chairman, Mark Mastroff, sold the company for $1.78 billion. Eric loves adventure, meditation, yoga, and mystical stuff, and has traveled to 89 countries. Welcome, Eric. Glad that you've joined us. Thank you, Philip. I'm glad to be here. So before we dive in, could you perhaps tell us a bit more about your personal background, how you grew up, and how you gained your global experience? Sure. I was born in Montreal, Canada, and uh, didn't really enjoy the constant uh, blizzards. What, talk about global warming. When I was a kid, I remember it snowing well before the, uh, Halloween and going right into May, uh, day after day. And now my brother, who still lives there, tells me it snows maybe 10 days a, a year. So... I wanted to, one of my goals was to get out of Montreal. I remember asking my dad, I was into golf and I was watching the Hawaiian Open <laughs> and looking at the, the ice on the inside of the windows of my house, watching the Hawaiian Open and saying to my father, what, why did you decide that the family should habitat here in this tundra, you know, and, I made my mind up that as soon as I could, I'm leaving uh, Montreal. And uh, my first foray, it's a very interesting story, I think. Um, I was born in Montreal in a Jewish enclave called 
Cote St. Luke, which we named Cote St. Jew after. I think we were 100% Jewish. So I was into yoga and meditation, and the Beatles were my heroes. The Beatles found the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, went to India, and that was the beginning of their you know, spiritual story, which George Harrison stated. And I thought, wow, if, they, if that's what they want to do, I'm going to do that too. And I had had my bar mitzvah and I had $3,600 in my savings account. And when I was 14, I took all my money and I ran away to India. The only one that knew was my brother. And uh, so it took two days before I got there. I had to fly from Montreal to Amsterdam, Amsterdam, Dubai, Dubai to Delhi. And um, two days, my, you know, my mother and father were wondering where their 14-year-old uh, boy is. And finally, I got through to my mother. And she said, where the hell are you? And I said, I'm in New Delhi. And she paused and she said, oh, what New Delhi is that? I'll come and pick you up. <laughs> Thinking that I'm at, you know, the new Schwartz's delicatessen down the road. So uh, that was my first uh, crazy adventure into international uh, waters. Amazing. At 14. That's yeah. Incredible. So uh, then I, I traveled. I I wanted to be a golf professional. I played in Florida for a while and wasn't good enough. I mean, when I got there and I was, I was already a scratch handicap and my caddy who was, who was, you know, I was 17. My caddy was 14. He was twice as good as me. And there was no way I was going to end up making that. Uh, and I was lucky enough to, well, actually it was my, girlfriend at the time's mother called me and said, go get the Newsweek magazine. And I said, okay. You know, I was back in Montreal at the time it was snowing. She said, no, no, go now. And first of all, I don't know why she would call me. She didn't like me. None of my girlfriend's mothers liked me apparently. And she was insisting. Anyway, make a long story short, I got the Newsweek. On the cover was this Christy Brinkley style, beautiful blonde and water. And it said Club Med. The, tr the geos that work there are the true gypsies of the world. I didn't know what a club meant was. I didn't know what a geo meant, but I certainly knew what uh, gypsy meant. And I certainly liked the picture. And I read the article and I'm telling you, Philip, when I put that magazine down, nothing was going to stop me from getting that job. So it's a French company. And I spoke French being from Montreal and I applied and I remember getting the, the, the envelope from them. My heart was pounding so, so hard. And it said, Felicitation, congratulations. Uh, we'll see you in Club Med Les Bouquiniers, Martinique, April 15th. And it was, I got it. I did it. And, uh, the beautiful thing about Club Med was that every six months, they sent you to a new village all around the world. Mm. So I traveled from Martinique to Tahiti, to France, to Africa, to Greece, all over the world. And uh, it was not just that, that adventure, but the two other things that were so important to me. 
I mean, we got paid $60 a month, so it wasn't that. Um, it was the travel, 600 new people a, a week from all over the world. And the people that worked with me were also international gypsies that were looking at adventure. And I got to appreciate the value of each culture and that there's no right or wrong, that everybody has a different mindset and they're, grown, they're, they're brought up differently. And there was an opening to uh, a certain type of intelligence on internationalism. And I really enjoyed that. That's marvelous. It's, it dovetails in many ways with my background. That's really superb. Really? Were, were, you, were you in Club Med as well? I've never been to Club Med, but I was introduced to the world at a very similar age, actually, around, well, 15, 16, mm -hmm. when I started to travel. Yeah. At that age, it's all big eyes and uh, new experiences and uh, yeah. fun and adventure. <laughs> Exactly. You know, and you can't, you know, as you get older, you go through all these different phases in your life. Like, no, I'm not going skydiving anymore. Right. You know, those type of no's instead of before, okay, I'll try it, you know. And we go through these different phases. And uh, so, but adventure, travel, you know, learning new things. What could be more exciting than that? Absolutely. And you obviously then got into the fitness industry and you became yes. extremely successful in that. Yes. I, my father, my father was a professional athlete and we mm. grew up in that mindset of uh, vitamins, um, no smoking, no drinking exercise. We used to exercise every, every Sunday at the YMHA. My father would work it every day. He'd take me on the weekends and it was all part of my life. And, um, very interesting story, I think. So after Club Med, um, I spent four years uh, at Club Med. I was an actor growing up, uh, a child actor, and I thought, well, I should be able to make it in L.A. Wrong. Actually, I was a stripper and a waiter uh, making more money than I was as an actor. But, um, and, but I finally landed a job, a great role in Mardi Gras, in New Orleans and it was with some big actors and I thought, hey, I made it. And uh, I get a, and we started rehearsing already and I got a call from my brother at 6 a.m. in the morning and he said, did you hear that Mardi Gras is canceled? And I said, how could Mardi Gras be canceled? And I hung up on him just like I wanna go back to sleep. And then I got a call from my agent, make a long story short, he called me down to sun, a sunset in West Hollywood, where his, his agency was. And it was raining every day that year in L.A., by the way. And uh, he says, did you hear Mardi Gras canceled? I said, well, how, how is Mardi Gras canceled? You know, it's a, it's a yearly thing. So the unions went on strike and whatever. And I said, well, where are we going to shoot it? And he said, no, 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 over. I said, over? Trust me, I'd already spent that money twice. He said, <laughs> Uh, I said, well, next year, now I'm grasping at any possibility, you know, in the field. And he said, no, no, it's over. They have insurance. Get out of here. Go. And I, I left that office and I'm standing on Sunset Boulevard. I have a Camaro that's worth nothing. Actually, when I sold it, the chain in my trunk was worth more than the car. But anyway, 
I'm standing on the curb and I hear the sound of the car that I love. It was a Porsche Turbo. And I'm looking over and I don't realize, but I'm standing in front of a foot of mud, mud water. And he comes by me, tsunamis me. This is a, you know, it's a perfect, uh, perfect movie. And I get soaked from head to toe. It's freezing cold. The tears are meshing with the mud. You know, and I said, okay, that's it. That's it. And I don't know if you know LA, but I walked from West Hollywood all the way to PCH Highway 1, walked to Venice Beach, which is about a four-hour in the driving range walk, left my car there, finally made it to my room, took my boots off, that's all, kept all the other freezing stuff on. And I looked up at the sky and I said, okay, I get it. You don't want me to be an actor. Cool. But I have no idea what I'm supposed to do. Now, um, show me what you want. So I wake up in the morning, you know, depressed and freezing. And I make my way to Gold's Gym, which was one club at the time. And at that time, Philip, men and women never worked out together. Even at the spas, Monday, Wednesday, Friday were women. Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday were men. And in Gold's Gym, the only women that worked out there were biker girls that were tougher than the Schwarzeneggers and the Frignos, you know, totally tattooed. And I'm, I'm standing at the front desk and this beautiful girl walked in and she said to me, thinking I worked there, she said, uh, would someone, would you be able to, to train me? And I looked behind me to see who she's talking to. And I said, me here? You, you would want to work out here? Look behind me. Look at, yeah. She says, "I think it'll be. I think you guys would get me in good shape. I'm doing a, a Playboy cover, and I want to get in good shape." Wow. And I said, "Do you see the girls in here? Do you're you not intimidated?" She says, "No. I think it would be interesting." And then my mind says, "Would you? Would your friends feel the same way as you?" And she says, "I think so." And boom! From that moment, I decided. I'm going to buy the name Gold's Gym. And I, I bought the name and it opened up, as you mentioned in the opening, uh, for Toronto and Santa Barbara. And I changed the name for to Gold's Gym to Gold's Fitness, which was easier, for women and men. Mm. And I did all my branding, all of everything to feature women and make it a unintimidating atmosphere. And when I sold my clubs, I had more than 50% women uh, memberships. Mm. So um, what I had done was I got into the fitness industry because that's what I, I knew. We, we It took off like crazy. And that was the beginning of my foray into ownership in the fitness industry. That's amazing. What a great story. Yeah. Um, can you share some of your other many successes internationally and know how you opened and how things succeeded for you okay well yes i will Philip. so when i and i mentioned club med earlier i really learned about branding um they were an international organization they had 80 locations 80 locations probably 50 or 60 uh, uh countries so they had to know something because as you know and i know each culture is different There's lots of uh, nuances and you have to know what you're doing. They obviously knew. And I watched that even though 
The food was okay. The rooms were not great. Two star, three star. Our sports were kind of okay. Our shows at night, which I was putting them on, were campy at best. In the parking lot, Philip, everyone was crying when they had to go home. Everybody. Doctors would give up their practice if they could stay a few months and be the doctor on the scuba boat. Mm. So I realized, well, hell, it wasn't about money. It wasn't about the any of the, it was about the experience that they got. That the value of that week could not be duplicated if you paid 20 times that. We, as GOs, got paid $60 a month, as I mentioned. And there was a thousand people that would have taken our job, you know, waiting to take our job. And uh, as a matter of fact, when I found my years later, the gentleman that hired me, who interviewed me in New York, he said, I was the only one they hired out of a thousand people that weekend. And I said, why? Was it because I spoke French? He said, no, it was that wild sparkle in your eye. Wow. That, that's what we want. And that I've never forgotten that. That's one of the best compliments I ever got. But I learned about branding through Club Med. They would do a 15-second commercial call. You see, you know, someone just with their hair blowing on the in the breeze. Club Med, the antidote to civilization. Mm. And I really honed in on that. And when I opened up my first Gold's Gyms, I also opened up uh, Super Gym Advertising. And I started doing advertising and marketing for all fitness centers. I was the official Gold's Gym uh, mar- uh, advertising company at that time. Then it had grown to about 100 locations. And on my second commercial that I made, I made it, did it myself directed it and wrote it and shot it. Uh, I came in, I won the silver medal at Ken Commercial Festival behind Michael Jackson. Wow. Yeah, and they used my commercial as the promo for the world to get people interested. Hmm. So I realized that, hey, I'm good at this. And uh, that has helped me, I believe, through all what I'm doing, as you know, and I know marketing is a big factor in success in yeah. every country. Um, and uh, I took that with me when I worked through, through all the different clubs, as you mentioned, Gold's Gym, Family Fitness Centers, Family cent- Fitness Centers, what a perfect name again, during the Reagan era, you know, families are cool again. And uh, that worked exceedingly well had a my partner Ray Wilson who I spoke to yesterday he's 95 wow and he's still my mentor and we partnered in that and then we merged with 24-hour Nautilus called it 24-hour fitness Mark Mastro was the founder of 24-hour Nautilus and uh, I retained a big shareholding third biggest in the company but I didn't want to be part of a big corporation so I went and opened up California Fitness Center in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Originally, our plan, Ray and I, were going to open up um, in the Philippines low-cost fitness centers. But when I landed in Hong Kong and I couldn't sleep, you know, Hong Kong's not that big of, a, of, a, of an island. I walked almost the whole island, saw that everyone had brand names. Whether you were a bank teller, you were, you know, you had a Chanel bag or Hermes bag and I'm thinking, well, how would they 
do that. And I realized that branding is so important to the Hong Kong people. And I said to Ray, no, I, I, I think I'm going to stay here and I'm going to open up a high-end fitness center. And in Hong Kong and throughout Asia at the time, this is before the handover uh, from the British to uh, China, 1996, there was no fitness centers, none, wow. none. And here I am, you know, I have not known there. I don't know anybody. I'm in Hong Kong and it is an international situation. At that time, the Chinese uh, school system, you had to learn English. Now you don't. No one speaks. Sadly, we all know what's happening in Hong Kong now. It's yeah. terrible. But at the time, everyone spoke English. There's a huge expat community. So I figured, you know, I'm going to open up in Asia. I better start with international situations. So there I am. I moved already to Hong Kong. And everybody's telling me the Chinese will never work out. The women will never sweat in front of a China, anybody, any man. You'll never find a location over, you know, a couple thousand square feet. The leases are one year. That's as long as you're going to get. And um, oh, Sorry about that. And uh, so the leases are one year at best. And uh, go home. Go home. Everything was against me. So. Here I am, and I'm thinking, geez, uh, I've already visualized this. I've manifested it. I've already seen the club. It's four stories. It's ground floor entrance. It's 40,000 square feet. I see, hear the music. I see the people. I smell the smells. I can even feel the money. I already manifested to a definite level. It's impossible that I'm going to fail. It's impossible. And um, I remember leaving uh, uh, a landlord who was so pretentious. He was blowing cigar smoke rings right over my nose. He was a master. And I'm thinking, I said, can you stop smoking, please? He said, well, I'm not going to start stop smoke because this meeting is over. There's no way I'm going to rent you my place for any amount of money. There's no such thing as gyms here. Kick me out. So I left that kind of depressed. And again, thinking, is my manifestation not working anymore? And sure enough, I walked down the street a different way than I normally got to this area, international restaurants and stuff. And I see a sign going up on a building that I had never seen before. Guess what? Four stories, all glass, ground floor entrance, escalators, exactly. And the sign said, for lease. Wow. Exactly like I had imagined. Exactly. Now the tough part. Okay. I'm in Hong Kong. I don't know a soul, really. Um, how the hell am I going to convince that landlord to give me his space? So across the street from that building was a restaurant called California. And I had heard about this billionaire from Montreal, a Jewish guy. Uh, and I found traveling around the world that Jewish people really help other Jewish people. That's, yeah. I found that throughout all my traveling, which is a beautiful thing. And I stopped in and I said, I heard uh, 
that Alan Zeman owns this restaurant. And she says, one second. He comes over and says, I'm Alan Zeman. Yeah. And I said, Mr. Zeman, hi, I'm Eric Levine. I'm also from Montreal. He says, oh, hi, great. How are you? One thing led to another. And I sat down. So what are you doing here? I said, I, I'm trying to open up fitness centers. He says, oh, that'll be good. Hong Kong needs it. And I said, the building across the street from you, uh, that's what I want. And he laughed. He said, that's 40,000 square feet. I said, yeah. He said, you're going to put a gym in there? Yeah. I said, well, how are you going to do it? And I said, well, first I have to meet the landlord. He said, oh, William, he's my friend. Let me make a phone call. The landlord came down. So this is all within half an hour of getting the cigar rings on my nose. To make a long story short, the guy says, sure, I'll rent you the space. He says, can you afford it? And I you know with my big uh, kahunas, and I'm thinking, of course I can afford it. He says, it's 250,000 US dollars a month. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> I bite my lip, and as being a salesman, I just showed no emotion. I said, oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, of course I can afford it. I said, okay, well, uh, I need six months in advance. Uh. Now it's a million and a half dollars. Wow. So I said, oh, okay. And uh, he said, well, if you come up with that kind of money and you show me certain covenants, make a long story short, I call my partner, Ray Wilson, who at the time is about 75 years old. And I said, Ray, I got great news. He said, what's that? So I found the best location in Hong Kong. He's in California at the time. He said, well, how much is it? And I said, 250,000 bucks. He said, how did you get it so cheap? Thinking it's a it's a yearly cost. Right. That's the cost of a California club about that. And I said, a month, Ray, a month. And I thought I gave him a heart attack because I didn't hear anything for a few minutes. I thought he was dead. The fibrillators. <laughs> and he came back to life. And to make a long story short, we opened up the first California fitness in that location. It cost us four and a half million dollars, not including the deposit. Mm. So we're in for six million plus, plus, plus. We made our money back 90 days after opening. Wow. It's extraordinary. It's crazy. <laughs> and uh, it was so exciting, Phil, that I remember one day uh, and thinking, you know, I haven't slept this week. <laughs> I had it was too exciting. The adrenaline and yeah. everything. We we pre-sold three thousand six hundred people mm. at about a thousand dollars each, and honestly, I would have to say ninety percent of them had no idea what they bought. <laughs> <laughs> they had no idea, and that's how I started in Hong Kong, in Asia, doing fitness. That's amazing. What a great story. Um, you had told me a story before about uh, the sweatshirts, I guess, for uh -huh. California Fitness. Perhaps you could share that with us. Perfect to a master of uh, translation like yourself. So, you know, I, I, there's no such thing as personal training in Asia. I started that. And I'm thinking I want to put have beautiful uniforms and I'm going to put something, a phrase in Mandarin. Uh, at your service is what I came up with, you know, at your service. I thought, okay. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to have 20 locations. So I'm going to need 
oh, I'm going to need a thousand jackets. So, you know, they told me 500 jackets is, let's say, $50. But if I go for a thousand, it's $20. So I said, okay, let's do a thousand. So I'm so proud of it. And I have an all staff meeting. And by the way, it was my assistant who suspiciously, she's talked, you know, English very well. She's always, you know, and, and spoke Cantonese. And I should have thought, I never really heard her speak Mandarin. But anyway, I, I have an all staff meeting there. And I put my, I'm so proud, I put my jacket on and I turn around and everyone's hysterical, <laughs> which isn't a good sign. <laughs> and I say, okay, so what's so funny? Apparently, the wording, the, the type of the phrase that I wanted at your service was what a prostitute would say to their client. I'm at your service. What can I do for you? So that was the, my, one of my first cultural uh, lessons uh, and uh, <laughs> costs. That was an early one, but certainly there was many more uh, through my years traveling and opening up businesses in other countries. That's marvelous. One, one of the, um, you mentioned about the translation business, one of the services that we offer is what I call name screening um, to exactly avoid that kind of situation. You know, your Very company important. name, your slogan, your product name, they should all be screened in at least 10 major languages before you plunge in and do anything because that can happen. <laughs> And you know, Phil, you're so right. And it's not just about the obvious stuff. Yeah. You know that, okay, the mine was an obvious mess up and I caught it early. So the damage was those sweat, you know, I lost whatever I lost. But how many things go on that no one stops and tells you? Mm. Hey, that's really not the way we look at that phrase. That's mm. really not doesn't make us feel comfortable or, right. you know, the subtleties that build up through the years and people take it, you know, in so many different ways, you really, really have to do your due diligence, have someone like yourself, like your company, watching your back and leading you because mistakes can be huge. Mine was a small one, right? but it, it woke me up. It woke me up. Another thing that I learned, Philip, uh, was early on, which was so important that, you know, Canadian or American would never know. I don't think any Western would know this. I learned the phrase taking someone's face or giving someone's face. Yes. And, you know, in our world, we know we have we all have egos. We have our, you know, reputations that we try to, you know, make and protect. But in Asia, taking someone's face is so deep that um, they'll either honor you for life if you gave them face and quite the opposite if you've taken their face. And things like that, thank goodness I learned that early, because when you're traveling around the world, you better realize what is their culture, what are their hot buttons? And the earlier you learn them, obviously, the, the, the easier your life is going to be, whether you're just living there as a, you know, as a tourist or as an expat or doing business. Mm -hmm. You really have to be aware 
of the culture, their import, what they place importance on, and uh, how you can merge with them. I mean, I had to lead because there's no fitness there. So I had to do what I had to do to get everybody interested in fitness. And then obviously others came and like the rest of the world, but you, you can lead, but you have to be sensitive to the culture. So you don't be like the big, ugly Canadian or American forcing your way on anybody. It has to be that, that uh, sweet spot of, yeah, of course I'm going to teach you fitness because we know that mm -hmm. we, we we're educated in that. Right. But I'm not saying you have to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. The right. look of the women there were, they didn't want, they wanted thin uh, model-esque look. And the men didn't want muscles at first. They wanted more of a Bruce Lee look, let's say. Mm. And as things progressed, things progressed. Yeah. So my ads had to reflect that. And I was lucky enough that Cindy Crawford was my spokesperson. So mm. And she was the number one in the world at the time. And so women say, oh, okay. So it's about that look. And, uh, you know, and that was from immerse, immersion into the culture. I'd been in Hong Kong for a couple of months, went to all the bars, went to the nightclubs, went to the restaurants, went to fashion shows. I went to every place that I thought my members would hang out at to see what they were wearing and trying to understand what it was that um, they wanted. Mm -hmm. Certainly different than the girls in California, right. certainly different than the men in Muscle Beach, right. but that's not gonna work. And my, my logo that I created was, and, and I, I chose the name California Fitness because, and my logo was sunglasses, palm trees, sun, sunglasses so you don't know if they're asian or not mm. california because worldwide people like that california hollywood yes. beaches cool. they watch but not everybody loves america right so california fitness had that excitement that mystique without ruffling anybody's feathers and those are the type of things you have to know when you're doing international business mm -hmm. You know what it is. I mean, you know, I'll give you a, for instance another one. At the my grand opening, I had uh, the governor of Governor Patton come and actually cut the ribbon. There was another club that opened up soon after, a few months after, and they called it New York Fitness. Hmm. And they had when I was running pictures of Cindy Crawford and some local Hong Kong uh, models. My competition was showing very muscled African-American men grimacing, doing heavy lifting. That's totally wrong in Hong Kong and Asia. It's ridiculous. It, it's the exact opposite. He, he, for whatever reason, I don't want to, you know, criticize. It's obvious. He didn't do his homework. He didn't understand who his market was. And, and obviously they failed. But... It's not so, you know, look, that maybe worked in 100 countries, but he didn't realize that that's not the thing at that time in Hong Kong. And that's a perfect example of not understanding, you know, the country that you're in, the culture that you're working with. Absolutely. Um, 
two things I wanted to add just for our, our listeners. Uh, the concept of saving face is um, it's very Asian, but it's also very Middle Eastern, very Muslim. Uh, and it's something to be an Indian for that matter, too. And to some extent in Latin America. And it's basically the idea of um, saving a person from embarrassment, making sure that the person's dignity and respect is maintained and doing nothing that might publicly offend the person. So that's uh, very important. Um, I wanted to ask about, uh, you said one of the obstacles to uh, opening in Hong Kong was the women don't, don't want to sweat. So how did you then uh, manage that? How did you bring the women into your gym? And so, and that goes to the the point I made earlier about leading without forcing. Mm -hmm. So, I hired a great public relations firm. Uh, this lady called Carlene, and she her 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 accent was so strong. Actually, I never understood a word she ever said to me, but instinctively, I thought she was the one. <laughs> True story, and. She and I said, look, I want all the celebrities, all the Thai Thais, which are rich ladies in Hong Kong. I want everybody here. I want the movie stars. I want the billion. I want everybody here. And I don't care what we do. I want to create a class where we'll pay a couple of actresses to come or whatever we have to do to attract and show that our California membership card is more important than a black Amex card. Mm. And that's what we did. We, we had the uh, movie stars come in and we had governor Patton when governor Patton cut the ribbon and the law in Hong Kong is where the governor goes. All media has to go. Mm. Um, we had all the top movie stars there. We had the Alan Zemans there. We had the billionaires. We had the classes, uh, Cindy Crawford. We, we, we made it so that it wasn't about sweat. It wasn't about workout. It was about fashion, the coolest place to be. You go there, you're a cool person. Yeah, it's not about sweating. It's not about working out. It's about, we called it exertainment. Mm. Because we had the DJs playing the music. And the last thing you thought when you walked into that place, of course, we had hundreds of pieces of exercise equipment, was working out. You thought it was either a, a casino or a cool nightclub. So the sweating and all that, gone. I obliterated that. That's fantastic. That's a superb way to brand something and make it work. It's outstanding. Thank you. Um, before we end, uh, can you give me another uh, sort of a cultural blunder, either that you know about or that you encountered or something with your experiences? Well, if we had a few days, I could give you about a thousand of them. Right. Um, let me touch on a few very important ones, I think, for your listeners. Mm -hmm. um, number one, never forget ever that you're a guest in that country. Mm. Never forget that you will never win a lawsuit against a local in that country. Don't even, whatever you got to do, you settle if that's possible. You will not win regardless of right or wrong. That has nothing to do with it, okay? Mm -hmm. And I've opened up in dozens of countries. It's always the same. Uh, and I have another really interesting story, but I don't know how much time we have. So... 
that's rule number one. You're always a guest, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm, I was in Thailand for 10 years and uh, had a public company there. I'm married to a Thai lady, I have a Thai son, and I'm a guest. And remember another very important thing when you're doing business. Some countries, you have to have 51% of a local person being your partner. Right. Yes. Now, your lawyer will say, well, like Thailand, for instance, a non-Thai cannot own land, cannot own a business. Yet there's, you know, four seasons and everything else there. How is it done? It's done through nominees and through lawyers. However, should it come down to your company being focused on by the authorities or anybody of power, you're in jeopardy. You're in jeopardy. Let me give you a for instance. And another key point is who is your partner? Because you could be in a situation that everything looks great. And your lawyer said, yes, we've papered it properly. Uh, even though on paper, they own 51%. You really, you really have the power, et cetera, et cetera. That's not assurance enough. Okay. That is not enough. For instance, your landlord is your partner. Okay. And in your lease, you have every three years, your lease goes up by fair market value. Okay. You go ahead and you get the biggest real estate company that'll do their survey for you. And they'll come back and they'll tell you and the landlord, uh, based upon our due diligence, that area has gone up 3% in rent. And your 51% partner says, my brother-in-law has a real estate company and he says it's gone up 103%. Mm. Now what? He shuts down the lights because you didn't pay the increase. You lose your business. And that happens and it will happen. And what I'm saying basically is it's not all what you think it is. You have to realize that the dangers are there and you are not one of the locals, no matter what, no matter how, you know, you can give to charity, you can do everything as a good person. Be aware at all times, there's always a a risk that Something could happen, and there is no recourse. There's no American embassy. There's no Canadian embassy that doesn't exist, you know. And some countries are worse than others. Some countries are are more. They're they're moving. They're moving towards more international. But still, and I'm not talking about 20 years ago. I'm talking about today. Mm-hmm. Countries can go backwards. Yes, can get worse as we're looking at perhaps Hong Kong or China. So so Burma, Uh Burma turns into, okay, open up an investment. This is what only eight years ago, right? All the money, trillions of dollars are going into Myanmar now, right? Uh Aung Suu Kyi is there. Everything looks beautiful. Ba-boom. Out. Overnight. So, you really have to do your due diligence, hire companies like yours, Philip, hire consultants that have done well and done poorly. 
that can tell you, okay, what country are we are we talking about here? And take you through the necessary steps. And it doesn't matter how much your consultant costs you, you're going to be saving a thousand times that. You may not go into doing it. But and you know it's it's funny because I had com- I had companies in Korea in Seoul. And so and you know Koreans it's not a, not an easy uh, culture for uh, for expats to do it, even Koreans to do it. And most most countries, a contract, a written contract, means nothing. Right. Get that straight, okay? <laughs> Where we believe in them in the Western world, in many countries, it's a joke. It's a farce. And I remember. Uh, John Kerry being so perturbed that the North Koreans continued with their nuclear program, even though we were giving them rice. We had an agreement. That's the type of thing I'm trying to tell your listeners. Right. Wise up. This is a big deal. It's not an American thing or Canadian. It's their thing. If you wait all the issues out and you want to take that shot, go ahead Get the best lawyers you can, the best accountants you can, hire a PR firm, do your due diligence, and be careful. Absolutely. Yeah, and in Western cultures, we think contracts are sacrosanct. But in especially in Asia um, and in the, and in the uh, Muslim world, the Middle East, um, what, what matters a hundred times more are your personal relationships your relationship with your partner and the trust and the rapport and the confidence that you have with each other. Absolutely. And, and that's doesn't really matter what the paper says. Great point. Fascinating. Um, before we close, um, I presume you, you do a lot of fitness in your spare time, but what else do you like to do to, to relax or just uh, non-work, uh, non-work time? Well, thank you for that question. I really enjoy doing meditation mm-hmm. um, and yoga. And uh, tra- I still travel all the time. My, I love learning new things. I'll tell you one of the funny things, one of my funny travel stories. So we went to Mongolia. We went with the Thailand Buddhist monks. They were teaching meditation. It was the end of May and there was, it was a blizzard. It was a snowstorm. And I'm, at the, I was, I'm a vegetarian. So we go to the salad bar and it starts off normal. Like, I don't want to say normal. It starts off as expected salad. Next bin is nuts and fruits. The next, next bin is uh, dairy. The next bin is fish, then seafood, then, uh, then seafood, then chicken, then beef, then pork. This is the most famous restaurant. Pork, dog, (laughs) horse. Wow. Other. (laughs) It was the other that got me. (laughs) That's wonderful. (laughs) So that's that's it. I still do lots of business and interested in doing uh, interesting things in business around the world. I love people, adventure, and I, you know, I have, I, I think I've never changed from when I started at Club Med. I, I hope I have that same sparkle in my eye that they hired me for. That's great. 
Well, you certainly do. You certainly have the joie de vivre, the joy of life and joy of living. Thank you, Philip. So thank you, Eric. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to know you and getting your stories and learning from you and having the great insights that our listeners will benefit from. So thank you so much. My pleasure, Philip. I'm honored. I know how important you are and what your work is. And thank you for, for having me. Thank you. So this has been Philip Auerbach. Please join us again next week for another edition of Global Gurus and their stories of international business.